In our Sunday evening services, we've been spending time following um, a confession of the basic truths of the Christian faith. Tonight, I'm going to read um, the Shorter Catechism, what we call the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 39, and then we'll be hearing a sermon on Psalm 19. So this is a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches, and tonight's question, question answer 39, is one of the most basic questions, not only in the confession or the catechism, but also for each one of us in life. And the question is, what is the duty which God requires of man? That is, what is the thing God is looking for from us? And the answer is, the duty which God requires of man is obedience to His revealed will. What does God want? He wants us to obey Him. So Psalm 19, you can follow along if you have a Bible, otherwise it's on the screen behind me. Hear the Word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The, commandments of the, Lord is, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declaring innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God. Back when I was much younger in college... Some of you have dropped off children at college. Others of you are anticipating college, or maybe you're attending college now. I did work study in the theater department. It was my job to build some of the scenes for the various plays that the theater department was hosting. And I don't remember the particular play, but I do remember the professor in charge of the site design came to see my work, and the first time he looked at it, he said, that's not what I'm looking for. You have to do something else. So I tore all that down, and I tried again a second time, and he came in a second time, and he said, you know, that's not the look we're going for either. That's never going to work. Tear it down and try again. So not really understanding what he was looking for, I tore it down and designed another site, built the site. The third time he came and said, that's not what I really anticipated either. I asked him this question, then what are you looking for? That's not just a question you might ask if you have to do the sort of work that I did while in college. It's a question every one of us faces, not simply with a professor who's fickle, but with a question that we might want to ask our Creator. What do you really want from me? What are you looking for from me? And Psalm 19 
tells us there are two ways that God speaks to us, first in the world around us, and then within what's called the law of God, the scripture, the written book that he has given us. These two ways tell us about who God is. And not only do they tell us who God is, but by the end of this song, this psalm, the writer also tells us what this God who is, what he really wants from us. And tonight, whether you've considered this question for many, many years, what does God want from me? Or tonight is the first time you're really considering that question, I'm going to walk through Psalm 19 with you to answer this very critical question, what does God want from me? And the answer the psalmist gives is God wants us to know him and to obey him. That's what God desires. To know him begins in the first section of this passage. The whole song develops in three very distinct portions. It's like a song that we might sing. Songs that we've already sung. Here are three different parts of the song. The first part of the song is the first six verses. And there the writer, David, describes the world that God has made and what the world says about its creator. He begins by saying in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. He says more about this creation and what it reveals, but the first thing he points out is the thing I want to stress to you, and that is it says something about who God is. When you live in this world, it is unavoidable that you must ask the question, and how did all of this come to pass? There are various explanations. There have been many explanations given during uh, our existence as humankind, but the Bible's answer is very, very clear. This world would not exist apart from a creator. A creation requires a creator, and the creation is the one found, revealed in the Scripture, And the world itself testifies to the greatness of this creator. The psalmist says four distinct things about this creation and what it says about the creator. He says in verse 1, it declares the glory of God. The heavens, the sky, and everything in this world proclaims the glory of God. The second thing the psalmist says about this creation is that there is a continual testimony about this creator from the creation. The third thing he says in verse 3 is that this testimony of the creation that is given by the whole creation continually also is given clearly. Look at verse 3. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Whether your native language is English, Spanish, French, whatever your native language is, The psalmist says the testament of creation cuts across all of that. If you live in God's world, the creator's world, you will be able to sense from the world that he has made that there is a creator, even if you cannot understand the language that another human being would speak to you. The testimony of the creation is that powerful and that clear. Fourth, he says in verse 4, that their voice goes throughout all the world. There is no place in this world, no matter where you live, that this testimony is not given. This testimony is from the whole creation continually, clearly, and to the very end of our experience in it. Now, those are four incredible claims about the testimony of the creation that God has given. And yet later when Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, describes the way we as human beings receive this testimony of creation. 
He says we suppress the truth of what creation is telling us in unrighteousness. Let me just explain a little bit what that means. You certainly know that there are alternative explanations for how the world came to be. Maybe it's that the world has always been. The world is eternal. Maybe it's that at some point there was some other way that the world began beside God. Whatever the explanation is as an alternative to what the Scriptures explain, according to God Himself, is an affront to who God is. I'll just give you a little example of this. When my wife and I were dating, I did something. I'm not sure if I would commend this to you, but I did it. I was madly in love with my wife. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'll even say I still am. And I created for her an oak cabinet that was lined with cedar in the inside. And when we became engaged, I not only gave her a ring, I gave her something that I'd slaved over for hours and hours and hours in order to show her that I wanted to work (laughs) and apply my skill in order to demonstrate my love for her. That cabinet's still in our house. Now imagine after doing all of that, somebody came along who was not me and claimed that that cabinet belonged to them and was a sign of their love for my wife. Does that make you a little angry that someone would try to do that? I tell you at that point, and even now it would make me angry. That's my cabinet, my sign of my love for my wife. How dare you claim that as your own? That was made by me. Do not claim it as your own and then say it represents your love for the woman I love. It's not true. i got to stop because I'm going to get angry otherwise. (laughs) I can feel it. The reason I'm putting it that strenuously is because you're living in a world that was created by God. It's His world. He made it. He designed it to care for the crown of his creation that's human beings. That's you. And if you live in his world and you deny the fact this is God's world crafted and made by him, you're not only denying the reality of the world that he has made, you're denying something very important about God. And that is that God is not who he claims to be. And you're doing on a cosmic scale What brings some anger in my own soul, that is you're giving credit to all that has been made to someone who has no right to claim it as their own. So that the first six verses of Psalm 19 tell us two things. First, who this creator is, and second, how powerful the testimony of this creation is to the creator God. God made all things. And the testimony of those things to who God is is clear and available to every single person. There's a second thing the psalmist says, and this is found in verses 7 through 11. There's almost a sudden switch in this chapter from the creation of what it says about God to verses 7 through 11, where this is great testimony about what's called the law, where it's called the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the rules. These are all different ways of describing what we hold in our hands here, if you have one. That is the Scriptures. This is God's direct testimony to who He is. Let me use another example about the time I was dating my wife. 
Some of you know that over the past week or so, there was electricity outages after the storm that came through. And while my daughter and I were hiking through the Rocky Mountains, my wife and family, they were at home without electricity, without air conditioning, and someone who we will not name did not turn on the circuit for the generator that would pump the water out of the basement to the outside. That was me. So while we were hiking in beautiful, majestic mountains, enjoying God's creation, my dear wife came one morning to the terrible discovery that there was water filling up the basement and something had to be done right now. Horrible. Not great. Not good at all. While she came to that discovery, she called my son who came home and helped her reconcile that problem, for which I am very thankful. One of the things that became wet in the flood was a whole series of yellow lined paper letters that you're truly sent to my wife while in college. I heard that. I felt the same thing. In fact, looking through some of those letters really impressed me with what a romantic I was. <laughs> now imagine somebody else came along and said, no, those letters came from me. Those were my letters. I wrote them. They're actually a description of my love for your wife, not your love. Again, you can understand how frustrating that would be for me. I agonized over those letters. This was the time you had to look up difficult words in the dictionary. These are my words that are laid out here to someone I love and I care about. In a very similar fashion, the words that are found in the Scriptures are meant as God's testimony about Himself to us as His creation. These are not someone else's words. These are His words, the Creator's words about what it means to live in His world and the law that is the standard that God is holding us to. Now, when you read these words, I hope that you're impressed with the delights that the psalmist takes in these words. They're rooted in God's character. He says they're complete. They provide us a solid foundation. They open our heart. They reveal things about us that nothing else can. They last forever. And perhaps most striking to me is what comes at the end of verse 9, where it says the rules of the Lord are true and righteous. That is, these words that are found in the Scriptures are actually true. There's no deceit in them. You can base your life on them. They're reliable. In a world in which there's all kinds of confusion, the Scriptures stand as a truth upon which you can base your life. And you notice because of it, the psalmist says, they're more desirable than anything else I have. Just look at verses 10 and 11. More than gold, sweeter than honey, I want these things. I long for them. And by keeping them, your servant, that is David, says, I have great reward. What did the Scriptures tell us about God? The Scriptures tell us that God is great, He is holy, He is just, and that we are called to obey and to follow His Word. If the creation tells us that God is great, and this world has been made by Him, we owe something to our Creator, 
It is dishonest. In fact, it is rebellious of us not to ascribe to the Creator the glory due Him for everything He has made. Then the Word of God tells us, and we owe this Creator absolute, unwavering, complete obedience because God is just and holy. What does God require of us? God requires that we know Him and obey Him completely. Now, most of the time, not every once in a while, not only when others can see us, but every single moment of every one of our lives, we owe this obedience to God. Those are the first two big sections of Psalm 19. And I have to pause and just ask you how you stack up compared to what these two first sections what we might call general revelation and then special revelation, tell us about our Creator and what God demands of us. God demands that we know Him and obey Him. Do you know Him and do you obey Him? I don't mean just sometimes. I just don't mean when it's easy. I mean, do you know Him and do you obey Him completely? Does it drive your life? Do you wake up in the morning and say in your heart, the Scriptures are worth more to me than anything else in my life. I'm going to dive into them deeply. Do you run around outside and say to yourself and to your children and your neighbor, look at what God has done. It's amazing. God is great. God is powerful. He's good. Is that what you say? Or are you more likely to say, you know what, people think I'm a little strange. If I do that, I'll just keep that to myself. I'll have a lot of joy and a lot of praise of God, just very internal. Do you know and do you obey God? That's the question that Psalm 19 asks. Which brings me to the third part of this song, which is verses 12, 13, and 14, where the psalmist reflects on the two ways in which we know and are called to obey God. And now we ask himself a series of questions Who can discern my errors? In fact, When he asks that question, it's a kind of question that's not meant as an open-ended question. He says, who can discern my errors? It's obvious. Who knows our errors? Who knows what's in our heart? God does. Immediately comes this conclusion, if I'm called to know God and to obey Him in everything that I do, I'm in trouble. Because I don't acknowledge Him in everything I do. I don't obey Him in everything that He's called me to. I'm in deep, deep trouble. And His desire is that God would declare him innocent from his hidden faults. It is his desire that his presumptuous sins, that is the things that he knows that are wrong, that he does anyway, he persists in them, that they would not have dominion over him, that he would be considered blameless and innocent of great transgression. So here's the question that we arrive at. If what God asks of us is to know Him and obey Him completely, how do we end up in a position in which we can say with the psalmist, I have been declared innocent from my hidden faults. My sins have no dominion over me. I am blameless and innocent of great transgression. I'll give you an answer that is not going to work. And that is you're going to try harder. Many of you know that two weeks ago I was at a running camp. There's a dear friend that someone in our church and I went together to visit. He runs a running camp. For most of the year, he volunteers his time in public schools in his city, training kids in cross-country and track. 
It's cost him dearly. You can imagine how much that costs him personally. And then for one week a year, he invites these kids, many of whom do not come from Christian homes, to come to a running camp. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, for a half hour in the morning and a half hour at night, someone talks to them about Jesus. That was my joy to explain to them the uniqueness of Jesus for an hour every day to many kids, middle schoolers and high schoolers who do not know Jesus and some of whom a good number were Islamic. And this might very, have, very well have been the first time they ever heard about how Jesus is. The reason I tell you that story is because in the Islamic faith, Allah is going to look past your faults, your sins, because you've made up for them. There was young, one young man, I will not name, who I said, how do you plan on doing that if that's how the Islamic faith works? He says, actually, I've come to the conclusion I'll never make up for them. And so I have tried to live so holy from the age of 10 at which we're considered accountable that even though I'm 16 years old, I have never sinned in any way since I have been 10 years old. That was his solution. I'm not sure he was being honest. He was sincere. I'm not sure he was honest. If you consider your own life, friend, you're going to find that's not an honest answer. And furthermore, attempting to make it up with the divine, it's never going to work. You are digging a hole in order to fill in another one. There will always be a hole. There is no escape from the absolute standard of the creator who made the air that you breathe, the dirt you walk on, and who speaks to you in the word of God. There is no relief in simply trying to do more and to do better. In Psalm 19, even though it does not say it specifically, ends with verse 14 where it does say rather overtly that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my my rock and my redeemer. Now that's such an interesting way to end a psalm in which the psalmist has said, we know about you and we're called to obey you from the world and the word, and I know that I am not innocent, that when you look at me, I am judged guilty because of what I have done, and yet I can end this song by saying, You can make me acceptable, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How is that possible? The answer comes later on in the Gospel of John. And if you can imagine me sitting in an old camp, the camp was nothing glorious, (laughs) let me tell you. But it was a place in which for many years children have heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ, many who'd never heard before. And sitting at an old table across from this young man, again, whose name I will not mention, as we discussed how we can be made right with the creator of the universe, I pointed him to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father. That is, the one who made all things, the creator of the universe, the one who's spoken in the word of God. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Where's your hope, my friend? 
If God requires of you that you know him and you obey him in every single part of your life, what is your hope? Where do you go? Where do you run to? Jesus says, this is the will of my Father. This is what my Father says you ought to do. The creator God says this, look on me, that is Jesus. Believe in me and you will have eternal life. The answer is not to look inward. It's to look upward to Jesus Christ who provides for you in mercy something that you're striving to do and yet will never complete. He will give you peace with a creator who made all things and who calls you to absolute obedience in the word of God. If you think of some way around this, you're going to end up in one of two places. One, you're going to be dishonest. You're going to say like this boy I talked to, I don't really have sin. I haven't sinned in six years. His sister was also at the camp, and I wondered what she would say about that. You're either going to end up being dishonest or you will end up in despair. Because if you seriously wrestle with your rebellion against the Creator, you will end up in a place that if you do not have Jesus Christ, there is no hope in the world. What does God require of you? To know Him and to obey Him. And the joy of the gospel is that you can know Him and you can follow Him in Jesus Christ. So that where you have failed, Jesus covers your failure. And where you strive to live after Him, Jesus equips you and makes you capable to live in a way you could have never imagined, imperfect perhaps, and yet in a way that is consistent with the will of my Father, that you look on Him, the Son, believe in Him, and you will have eternal life. That is the good news for you tonight. Would you join me in praying? Father, it is good to pray to you and to acknowledge the reality of our condition. I confess to you, Lord, that often our hearts seek for things that cannot bring relief. Maybe the best we can do, we feel, is distraction. Maybe it's watching a lot of movies. Maybe it's going to social media. Maybe it's buying ourselves things we don't really need. Maybe it's going on long vacations. Maybe it's associating ourselves with people who are powerful and we receive some residual effect of their power. Maybe it's pretending as though we are not as bad as we really are. Lord, whatever way we try to avoid who we really are before your face, Lord, this is the moment in which we say honestly to you, we are sinners who have rebelled against you as creator. We have not obeyed you perfectly, and we have no hope except in the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. Lord, may the freedom that Jesus came to bring be ours tonight the relief from the punishment, the shame, and the guilt that we so often feel. Lord, give us richly and freely the grace that comes in your Son that we would not be weighed down with what we could never repay, but instead we would enjoy, embrace your Son, and live in freedom. Father, make that true for each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.